This is the My Weight What to Know podcast, where we talk to medical experts about the latest research on weight management and how you can apply it to reaching your best weight. We have a very special episode for you tonight with Dr. Mary Forehan, the Scientific Director of Obesity Canada. We're gonna be talking about why obesity is a medical condition that's often misunderstood and how we can fight weight bias. Dr. Forehan, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So the way our culture talks about obesity today really has a lot of bias and judgment associated with it. So let's set the record straight tonight. Why is obesity a chronic medical condition? Oh, good question. And, and I think that's still up for conversation. So right now, currently, and I say currently because as we learn more, things change and we have to redefine. But right now, as we know it, we take a look at adiposity. And when that adipose tissue starts to impact a person's health uh, and their ability to maybe perform and do the things that they want and need to do, then we start looking that in, in more of a disease. And so there's very specific criteria that a physician will go through to provide that diagnosis. What makes it chronic is that what we do understand is that obesity lasts longer than a few months or a few weeks. This is something that is with people for a significant amount of time. And when we talk about chronic disease, we talk about anywhere from three months, it's usually the minimum, but a year. And it's very, very unusual that somebody would have obesity for, for less than that period of time. And so looking at it as a chronic disease allows us to set up really very realistic expectations around treatment, um, length of time, um, you know, what a person can expect and anticipate and how healthcare providers can actually engage that relationship to have that longer term connection which is really required to be effective in treating obesity. So how many people in Canada are living with obesity today? So it's just shy of two million, we think, are living with obesity. And, and that's an interesting question in and of itself because we're really the data that we have to go by is um, body mass index data that is collected through public health, uh, through surveys, community health surveys, statistics. Um, and that doesn't really tell us the whole picture. So we use that because that's the best measure we have from a epidemiological point of view right now. But until we can get um, better data, that's the numbers that we are working with. And as we can get more specific in the type of data that we collect, we can actually hone in to know who of those two million people in Canada, and this is adults actually, um, are actually living with the disease of obesity. Because right now what we can say is that there's almost two million adults living with a body size that's classified as obese, but whether they're living with the disease of obesity, we still need to fine tune that number. So clarify that a little bit for me. So what is the difference between living in a larger body versus living with the disease of obesity? quite a bit difference actually. So when we uh, think about large body, we, again, we're looking at BMI just because that's what's out there and, and so well known, is when we have a BMI um, identified as uh, over, over 25, we consider that overweight or that's how it's classified. I shouldn't say we consider that. So it's classified as overweight. And then a BMI of 30 or more is classified as obese. But that was really long before we started thinking about obesity as a disease and, and rather a descriptor of a body type. So now we have to start taking pause and say, is that BMI associated with the disease of obesity or is that person living in what we would call a larger body, larger than 
you know, what these charts say is normal, which is a terrible description. Um, so many, many people uh, are living healthy, um, high-functioning lives uh, at, at a BMI that is classified as obese. That doesn't mean they have the disease of obesity. And I think that's where we run into trouble, is that we have typically been using BMI for so long to say, you need to lose weight to get to a certain target, when that actually may be causing harm. So having a larger body is not an illness, it's not a health condition, it's not a problem unless that there is the disease of obesity and then we need to start looking at it for health reasons, not for punitive reasons or, or to try to get everybody to fit a certain type. That's not the goal. So having obesity is more when our weight is impacting our health. Absolutely. So one of the amazing things that Obesity Canada does is does so much work fighting weight bias and weight stigma. What percentage of people in Canada report experiencing some type of weight bias or weight stigma in society? It's hard to know exactly how many because I think it's something that's very underreported that people there's so much shame associated and people may not even recognize that it's happening it's just sometimes so insidious that that it becomes typical and expected and people don't identify it um, but we do know that more than 50 60 percent of people living with obesity or even people living in larger bodies experience weight bias weight bias in their interactions with healthcare professionals employers the general public and so it's quite significant um, the exact numbers we really don't know because it's something that's very, very challenging to measure. So what would you say to someone watching at home about the role they can play in fighting weight bias in society? So much of what we say and do, and it's it's our, in our actions and in our words and, and how we interact with individuals. And I think it's just starting with being honest with yourselves about um, what do I think about people living in larger bodies? Or when I hear that somebody has the disease of obesity, what are some of my first reactions, the first impulse thoughts that I have? And capture those and pause, reflect, and really ask yourself, what is the evidence for this thought? Why am I thinking this way? And I need to get better informed to, to dispel that myth. So listening and looking for role models, reading, uh, reading some of the literature that we have at OBC Canada and many, many other great organizations and start to become really informed. So I think reflection and being open to being self-critical um, on our biases and how that in impacts the relationships. Another thing that we encourage people to do is asking yourself, do I avoid spending time with people who have obesity? Do I cut short my visits if I'm a healthcare professional? Do I rush through appointments because I don't know what to say or I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing? So that's another thing is pay attention to your actions and your behaviors when you're around people who are living in large bodies or people who say, I have obesity because that's very telling as well as does your behavior or your interactions change with that individual because of their body size. Dr. Forehand, on our last episode with you we talked about advocacy and how advocacy is really the way to combat weight bias. What are some of the ways that people in Canada can advocate for those with obesity? Oh, It really truly takes a community and a part of it is um, advocating for access to evidence-based 
treatment for obesity. And so really being aware of, and you can do that through many organizations, including OBC Canada, to find out what is evidence-based care and how do I support my family member, advocate for myself to be able to get access to those treatments. So using resources such as you've mentioned in, in your show as well, um, we have resources on our website um, to be able to raise awareness about the importance of getting evidence-based care, something that is driven by science and is um, appropriate for individuals. So that's one way. I think it's also about raising conversations when you have the opportunity, whether it's with your own um, physician or if you're a healthcare professional and you can raise that with your colleagues, with your professional organizations. Um, that's something that I did when I first started getting into obesity back in the 90s, was talking about um, obesity and the impact on participation in everyday living with my colleagues who were in rehabilitation sciences and occupational therapy, physical therapy, and getting awareness about that and then starting to say, oh, I, I need to make sure that's included in, uh, in our conversations, in our scientific programming. So I think it's about talking about it, taking those opportunities. The other piece that I think is really important, and it also addresses weight bias, is when we hear negative conversations, when we hear negative comments um, about people living with obesity is to take that opportunity for education. Um, rather than trying to tell people they're wrong, no one likes to hear that, is to say, oh, I hear what you're saying. Did you know that obesity is a chronic disease? that obesity actually has some really prominent evidence-based solutions, but people have a difficulties accessing them because their benefits don't cover them and we need to do better. We need to make sure that we can provide proper care and appropriate care. So there's so many touch points. Um, something that else that I, I think is a great opportunity is if you're in a physical environment, maybe you're shopping at a store, uh, maybe you're in a waiting room at a medical appointment or, or even you know at, at a hair salon or something and you notice the space is not accessible for somebody with a larger body. If you could just have a casual conversation about, oh, I notice these chairs, they're very fashionable, um, but they seem very tiny, or they don't seem that they would have a, a weight support that would really support the weight of a lot of clients that would like to come here. So there's opportunities to very constructively point out uh, factors in the built environment, factors in the social environment that are easy fixes that some people may not have even thought about. That's such a good example because that's not being critical. It's probably just raising awareness of something that, yeah. that people aren't thinking about. Exactly. So often I think advocacy sounds daunting for someone who may have been discriminated against because of their weight. And many people with obesity feel like their weight is their fault. And that's really internalized weight bias. Can you talk about what internalized weight bias is and how we can overcome it? Yeah, it's an interesting concept. So internalized weight bias, whether you have obesity or not, is um, that dialogue that you have internally uh, with yourself is things like, I won't get that job promotion because of my weight. Um, you know, I don't want to go out into public. I really would like to go out and, and go to that store, or go out for a walk, but I'm, I'm going to be looked at negatively by people in my community. And some of that is based on experience. Like some of it's very, very rational that it's based on, on history, on trauma that may have occurred in the past. Um, but oftentimes it's also that dialogue, that internal dialogue of, taking the messages that we hear outwardly about people uh, with obesity and internalizing them to apply them to yourself and holding yourself back from accessing treatment. 
there's no point in me raising this about my doctor because all they're going to tell me is eat less, more, move more, and think that I'm lazy. So that's an example of internalized bias, is taking what we hear outwardly and turning it inward you know, on ourselves. So as part of that internalized weight bias, as you just alluded to, many people feel like, you know, my weight is my problem to deal with. You know, I, I shouldn't ask for help. But really, like, seeking medical support and seeking support from advocacy organizations like yours can make all the difference for some people. Tell us why that is. No one should have to do this alone. We don't expect other chronic illnesses to be dealt with individually and independently and in private. Um, people need to reach out to the supports that are available and I think that's important to know that there is really well trained medical professionals, there's uh, people who are part of interdisciplinary teams to work together as a team to walk that journey to, to work with individuals living with obesity. So if there's people watching this show who are living with obesity and saying, I just, I should be able to do this on my own, I should know better. No, no one would expect you to cure your own cancer, to fix your own heart disease. Um, it's important that you realize that there's people out there who want to help, who are there to work with you, not for you. And I think that's a real shift in the way we approach care to many chronic diseases, including obesity, is you are a, a client. You are somebody who is coming for help to be part of that team, and you're a very important person on that team. And in fact, the more we learn about obesity, the more personalized that treatment can be. So it can be very customized to you. So what you might be reading about and hearing about in the general public information that we all have may not be appropriate for you and you won't know until you reach out for help. And uh, many, many patients that, that I hear from will say, I wish I had done this sooner. I wish I had known that this was available and it all makes sense now. Um, just recently I heard a, a patient say in one of our client groups was um, what relief it brought them to understand that this was not their fault, that this was genetics, but there were ways that they could take control of their health that they never knew about had they not reached out for help. So it's so important. So one of the things I love about Obesity Canada is how you incorporate patient ambassadors. You really keep the lived experience of people living with obesity at the center of everything you do. What does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? That has to be one of the most rewarding, grounding um, aspects of, of the work that we do at Obesity Canada. It's, it's a reminder of why someone like myself, I don't live with obesity, I don't have that lived experience. Sometimes it can get a little isolating and a little lonely when you're doing research. When you have individuals at the table with that lived experience who are as committed to the cause as you are, it, it gives you energy and it gives you focus and purpose for what you do. But I think most inspirational is the fact that our research and our organization would not be what it is if it wasn't informed by the individuals by which the organization is set up to, to work with and, and to, to help with as well. And so we're, it's been something since I started with Obesity Canada is really listening to that, um, not necessarily a patient voice, but a person with lived experience, not just hearing it, but respecting it and partnering with individuals with that lived experience. This is not about ticking a box and saying we do this. This is a commitment. This is active engagement. And I think by the numbers that we have and the, and the 
ongoing relationship that people have with us is is a testament to that you know that we might be doing something right and um, it's a privilege it's an absolute privilege for someone like myself to to be able to be in the company of individuals that are so willing to share their experience so I think many people have experienced weight bias unfortunately in the medical setting as well the clinical practice guidelines are changing that though. Tell us what the clinical practice guidelines are and how they are changing care in Canada. So the clinical practice guidelines in, in Canada for adult obesity have um, really raised that conversation again and started to really focus in on one, looking at a definition of obesity as a chronic disease, that's the starting point. And also starting with the principle of being patient informed. And so every single chapter has somebody or more than one person living with obesity who is part of that team on informing the content and coming up with the recommendations. So the recommendations are based on evidence. That's non-negotiable. We go through a very rigorous process to, to identify the evidence and also rate the evidence on, on its um, strength of that evidence. But then when we start to um, look at that evidence and, and what is that telling us about obesity treatment. We encourage people living with obesity to be part of that process to say, what does this mean to you? And how do we translate that so that people living with obesity understand that and can work with their family physician or their family practice team on getting the best treatment for obesity? So to me, that's a real unique thing that I think has made these guidelines more accessible than any guidelines that have existed in the past because they have recommendations for healthcare professionals and teams but they also have recommendations for patients that they can then take that information to their healthcare provider and say, these are some recommendations I read about in the guidelines and they're in a very usable format. So it creates that opportunity for conversation and co-learning and co-designing that journey of obesity treatment with the patient and their care provider who have access to the same guidelines, which is fantastic. So if someone is feeling a little concerned maybe about talking to their family doctor about about weight, you know, afraid that the doctor might just tell them eat less and move more, they can go to the guidelines, do a little research and kind of come prepared to that appointment with the right information so that they can have the most productive conversation. Absolutely. It's a very user-friendly um, document. It's a bit daunting because it's big, um, but on the website you can go to specific chapters and all the recommendations are very clearly laid out in, in text boxes so you don't have to read all everything in between. You can go right to the recommendations, but something we're really proud of on, on the design um, and the process too all the way through. The other thing that we did with the guidelines, which was very intentional, was very clear principles and practices when we were writing every chapter. And that's about using um, person-first language. Uh, it's about situating obesity as a chronic disease, and it's also making sure that we have um, consultation and information from those living with, with obesity. So one of the big takeaways for me on the clinical practice guidelines was that weight bias isn't just unkind, it can actually lead to weight gain for people living with obesity. So talk about how weight bias can make living a healthier life harder. Yeah, weight bias does have this impact. And I think it's it's part of it is these unintended consequences that have happened and built up over time. But one thing that we hear a lot about is patients who would benefit from obesity treatment or, or to reach out for help with their obesity delay accessing that care. They have this internal dialogue of, I should know better, I did this to myself, 
no one can help me, I've tried this before and it didn't work, or I tried to raise this conversation with a healthcare professional before and was told, you know, go away, eat less, move more and, and get some control over it. And that, that can be damaging over time when people are feeling that they, there's not help out there because of their previous experience. And I would encourage people to really reach out and have those conversations and, and hopefully be pleasantly surprised that as we do more work, you know, as a collective with all of us doing this kind of work to raise awareness about, about obesity, that we are creating better opportunities, better prepared clinicians, um, more awareness that the care that might have been provided years ago has improved um, and that we hope people will be received more compassionately and, and with respect. Not to say that wasn't happening years ago, but maybe not as frequently. And so I'd encourage people to try to reach past that. The other thing that happens with weight bias is it takes its toll mentally. So this constant negativity, whether it's coming from external to you or internal or maybe both that does we know that that does affect um, our, our neurochemistry and can release um, cortisol levels that can actually have a negative health effect on us as well and so having all of this happening because of weight bias and because of a lack of understanding about obesity really can hold people back from accessing care can be causing other health issues as well and uh, it, and it's a shame actually because there's things that we can get ahead of earlier and uh, and weight bias seems benign people say oh you know get thicker skin and 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 don't take it so seriously stop being so sensitive but day in and day out um, you know some people really describe this as trauma is ongoing trauma and it can have a very strong negative impact on individuals I believe that, and you alluded to this a little bit, you know, that we are coming a long way, that healthcare professionals are looking at obesity differently now than they did. Look into your crystal ball. What will obesity care look like in five years? What should people with obesity expect to change over the next five years? It's exciting times. I, I have to say I've been in the space for, you know, going on 20, 25 years, and the amount of people who are coming to talks you know, shows like this didn't exist before. Um, the fact that we can have this conversation and there's an audience for that and, and there's a, a, a need and a, and a drive for this is, is hugely exciting. And also when we look at what's happening uh, in industry around um, the, the, what we're learning about chemistry and what we're learning about brain function and gut function and the opportunities for um, pharmacotherapies to be able to be a big part of the treatment for obesity along with other things to really complement that is really exciting and the day doesn't go by where we're not reading something new um, you know about advancements in care and it's not just the advancement in care around the, the chemical and the neurochemistries and all the the pharmaceutical agents that are coming on, out to market and that we know are being tested but it's also what we're learning from a counseling perspective and approaches that make treatment for obesity accessible that it's it's one thing to have maybe therapeutic that are available, but those are of no use if people don't feel comfortable seeking care. The other exciting thing is 
When I first started in this space, insurance companies never considered obesity as something serious and as something that they should really be part of offering um, treatment options for, uh, for some of the, their customers that they have. And we're starting to see more awareness of that as well, that it's less of a, a lifestyle or an aesthetic issue, that it is a chronic disease that warrants attention. So I cannot wait to see uh, what's happening. And, and I have to say this too, um, never did I think an occupational therapist would be the scientific director of Obesity Canada. So just the fact that my colleagues see the value in multidisciplinary approaches to obesity and that we all are bringing something important to the table is a huge milestone. And I, again, just can't wait to see what the next five years will bring us. Dr. Forehand, thank you so much for being here with us and for all the wonderful work you do at Obesity Canada. Thank you. We will be back with a new episode in a few weeks. Until then, please stay safe and take good care. Good night. This podcast episode was sponsored by Novo Nordisk Canada. It was created independently by My Weight What to Know with no influence from Novo Nordisk.